You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 415th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, when we left off last time, it was August 19, 1863, and William Quantrill and the other rebel bushwhackers had set off riding from western Missouri toward the Kansas border aiming to avenge the death and maiming of some of their womenfolk after the collapse of a building in Kansas City that was being used as a makeshift jail by the Federals. 26-year-old William Clark Quantrill had been born in a small town in Ohio, some 80 miles south of Cleveland. At the age of 16, he began teaching in his hometown, then in Illinois and in Indiana, But in 1857, he began life anew as a farmer in Kansas. Eager for adventure, in 1857, he signed up as a teamster on the U.S. Army expedition that was marching to Utah, prepared to do battle with Brigham Young and his Mormon militia. Then, after prospecting for gold in Colorado, he returned to Kansas, taught for a while, then moved to Lawrence, where he came to despise James Lane and became convinced it was the Jayhawkers who were responsible for the border troubles with their raids into western Missouri to free slaves and to loot and plunder. Quantrill eventually became involved with those who worked clandestinely to return livestock and fugitive slaves to their owners in Missouri. This involved numerous secret trips to the border and back. For this work, Quantrill used the alias Charlie Hart. However, eventually, suspicion in Lawrence grew, questions were asked, and the game was up. Late in 1860, to avoid arrest, Quantrill fled to Missouri. Quantrill's political views and personal turning points are hotly debated topics, but there's no doubt that he sided with the Confederacy after the outbreak of war in 1861. In fact, Quantrill fought in Missouri with Sterling Price's Confederate Army at the battles of Wilson's Creek and Lexington in August and September 1861. Some of you may remember the Battle of Lexington, Missouri as the Battle of the Hemp Bales. At any rate, by September 1861, Quantrill seems to have had his fill of fighting as part of an organized army, because after the Confederate victory at Lexington, 
he returned to his home in Jackson County in western Missouri on the Kansas border and began to form his own band of rebel bushwhackers who would be known as Quantrill's Raiders. William Quantrill and his band began a campaign of not only attacking federal outposts in Missouri, but also raiding towns on both sides of the border and terrorizing anyone suspected of having ties with or supporting Kansas Jayhawkers or Union military forces, including executing them in cold blood. As Quantrill's band of bushwhackers grew in numbers, It included men who would gain notoriety after the war as outlaws, such as Cole Younger and the James brothers, Frank and Jesse. In March 1862, Quantrill and his men joined Confederate forces in an attack on Federal soldiers stationed at Independence, Missouri. Afterwards, Quantrill may or may not have been offered a commission as a captain in the Confederacy's partisan rangers. But most sources make clear it's uncertain whether that actually happened. Be that as it may, the most significant event in Quantrill's career as a rebel bushwhacker slash Confederate guerrilla was certainly his raid on Lawrence, Kansas in August 1863. By the time William Quantrill neared the Kansas state line late in the afternoon on Thursday, August 20th, his band of bushwhackers had been joined by others of like mind so that the force riding with him across the prairie had grown in number to over 400 men. They crossed the border a stone's throw from the small town of Aubrey, Kansas. Besides a small hotel and a handful of houses, There were also two companies of Federal Cavalry stationed there, commanded by Captain Joshua Pike. Pike's command amounted to only about a hundred troopers, and he realized it would be suicide to try to take on the unusually large number of rebel bushwhackers who rode right by Aubrey, headed west. Deciding discretion was the better part of valor, he sent word of the encounter north and south to other cavalry posts up and down the border, but it apparently never occurred to him to spread the alarm to the farms and towns that lay to the west, inside Kansas. Throughout the night and into the early morning of Friday, the 21st, the long, dusty column of Missourians moved steadily toward Lawrence. Finally, shortly before 5 a.m., Quantrill halted on the last rise, with the entire town laid out before him. All seemed quiet, But the bushwhackers could hardly believe an alarm had not been raised, so two men were sent ahead to reconnoiter. As the scouts passed through the town, a few early rising citizens noticed them, but paid them no mind. Within a very short time, the men returned and told Quantrill that, as unbelievable as it might be, the alarm had not been raised. No one suspected their approach, and most of the town was still asleep. That was all William Quantrill needed to hear. He gave the signal, and the 450 bushwhackers descended upon Lawrence like so many demons bursting forth from the gates of hell.
At five o'clock on the morning of Friday, August 21st, 1863, Sarah Fitch arose at her family's home in Southeast Lawrence. Her husband, Edward, and three children were still asleep. As she moved about quietly, she noticed it was a peaceful, beautiful dawn. There was not a cloud in the sky nor a trace of wind. But then, as she wrote in a letter to Edward's parents back in Massachusetts, quote, I heard the report of a pistol, then another, and another, twenty or thirty shots. Edward, said I, what's all that about? There was a camp of recruits just back of our house, and the shots were in that direction. Oh, answered Edward, it's the boys having some fun. But the shots came thicker and faster. Edward sprang to the window. It's more than fun, said he. The rebels are upon us. Nearby, early riser Erasmus Ladd was standing on the porch of his home when he heard many pistol shots shattering the morning calm. He couldn't see anything because of intervening houses, but in his words, quote, The shots were accompanied by cheers, or rather yells. In a few moments, as I stood looking, some three or four Negroes came rushing by, hallowing, The secesh have come! As I looked, the head of the column of fiends rushed down the street. I saw that truly the secesh had come. I went to call Eliza, but she was already up. We commenced to get up and dress the children as fast as possible. Charging through the town, the rebels spotted the camp of 22 unarmed federal recruits. According to one horrified witness named Henry Clark, quote, Forty or fifty of the bushwhackers commenced firing into the tents, and the boys began to run out for safety. As they ran, the mounted horsemen followed, shooting them at every jump. Clark continued, quote, One little fellow, about fifteen years old, after being shot, succeeded in reaching a point close to my house. Then a bullet struck him and he fell to his knees. As they came on, he held up both hands and said, For God's sake, don't murder me, don't murder me. The reply was, No quarter for you federal sons of bitches. Despite the terror of the moment, Reverend Richard Cordley looked on in awe as the bushwhackers thundered through Lawrence. He noted, quote, The horsemanship of the guerrillas was perfect. They rode with that ease and abandon which are acquired only by a life spent in the saddle. Their horses scarcely seemed to touch the ground, and the riders sat with bodies and arms perfectly free, with revolvers on full cock, shooting at every house and man they passed, and yelling like demons at every bound. On each side of this stream of fire were men falling dead and wounded, and women and children half-dressed, running and screaming. William Kempf later recalled, quote, After they had spread over town, they commenced to plunder in the most deliberate manner conceivable. Every store was broken open. The first thing they looked after was the safe. Every safe was bursted open when they could not get the key, but they were so well informed about everything that they sent, in several instances, to the private residences of persons demanding the keys for the safes in the stores. Many bushwhackers carried pieces of paper on which were long rows of names. 
In the house-to-house searches that ensued, these death lists were referred to again and again. In that letter to her in-laws back in Massachusetts, Sarah Fitch wrote that as she and Edward looked out the windows of their home, quote, Edward was perfectly calm. Of course, we could not venture out, for they were firing all about us constantly, were screaming and yelling. All at once, 20 or 30 of them swept up to the house, surrounded it, and in an instant, a ruffian burst open. Oh, that face, a coarse, brutal, bloodthirsty face, inflamed with hellish passions and strong drink, for he was evidently intoxicated. With horrid oaths, he said not one of us should leave. Another one was behind, with perhaps one spark more of humanity in his bosom, and he said, Let the women and children go. I was almost beside myself with terror for Edward. I knew his doom was sealed. That demon who was there, swearing, shouting, and screaming, with his revolver cocked in one hand, the matches lighted to burn our home in the other, he turned and saw my Edward, and without a word the deadly aim was taken, shot after shot in rapid succession, emptying his own revolver, then taking the weapon from the hand of his companion and using all of its load to make sure of the work of death. I begged, I looked around on that circle of hard, cruel faces, and I knew there was no help. Oh, had God forgotten us? The match was applied to our house, I took my screaming children and went across the road and threw ourselves on the grass. In the meantime, the house opposite ours had been fired, and soon the flames made it too hot for us to remain there, and we went further away and threw ourselves upon the ground and watched the work of death and desolation go on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. 
During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Some men on the deathless managed to escape. Quantrill and every bushwhacker rampaging through Lawrence wanted to get his hands on the hated Jim Lane, but Lane fled to a nearby large cornfield in his nightshirt and with others hid there. Another of the most sought-after men in town was Hugh Fisher. The jayhawking preacher's exploits in Missouri and his reputation for freeing slaves and robbing secesh churches were well known. Fisher escaped death when he hid under a large carpet his wife dragged out of their burning house. Not every bushwhacker had the stomach for the no-holds-barred murder and arson. There were reports that not a few of the Missourians, after setting a house on fire, caved in to tearful appeals and joined the occupants to save what they had intended to destroy. And most weren't stone-cold killers. More than once, as they rummaged through homes searching for plunder, many obvious hiding places were avoided, and often a bushwhacker would turn his back while a man escaped. But harder sorts, fueled by hatred or liquor, were always just around the corner. Two squads of bushwhackers broke into the home of five-year-old Anna Morgan, but each time her mother somehow managed to convince them to leave. However, Anna later remembered how, quote, the third group of raiders arrived, most of them drunk. My mother told them of the promises the others had given, but they said they had not made any such bargain. They grabbed one of my brothers, shook him, and almost scared him to death. They held a gun to the head of another brother, but after a while decided he was too young to kill. The robbers went through the house, searching for money or other valuables, and then told my mother to take out what she wanted. The bandits stirred up the huss in a mattress and started the fire. Then they piled on chairs and anything else that would burn and went away and left us. Anna and her family fled their burning home and found refuge in a nearby cornfield. She recalled, quote, there, Mother and I and my brothers all lay down. We were so tired and the day was oh so hot. The air was so still that the smoke from every burning house in Lawrence rose straight upwards like a tall column. By 9 a.m., most of the bushwhackers had gathered in Lawrence's South Park to form up for their long ride back to Missouri. Pack horses were loaded with plunder, as was a captured ambulance wagon. As the raiders rode off, they left, behind them, over 150 dead men and boys, more than 200 homes and businesses destroyed, and an estimated $2.5 million in damage. Remarkably, Quantrill managed to reach Missouri safely, despite the efforts of thousands of Kansas militia and federal cavalry to stop him. 
One detachment of pursuers was led by District Commander Brigadier General Thomas Ewing himself, who had ridden from Fort Leavenworth with some 300 men, determined to run Quantrill down. Ewing was bitterly disappointed when he failed to catch the bushwhackers. He reported, quote, Quantrill skillfully kept his best mounted and best trained men in the rear and often formed line of battle to delay pursuit and give time and rest to the most wearied of his forces. By the time our scattered soldiers and citizens could get up and form line, the guerrilla's rear guard would, after a volley, break into column and move off at a speed that defied pursuit. Thus the chase dragged through the afternoon, over the prairie, generally following no roads or paths. On into the night of August 21st, the wily Quantrill continued to dodge and bewilder his pursuers. The following day, with the loss of a mere handful of men, including only one in Lawrence itself, Quantrill led his force across the state line and into the safety of the Missouri hills and woods. Although the hunt continued in western Missouri for the next few days, the Federals came up empty-handed as the bushwhackers dispersed and scattered into the countryside. William Quantrill savored his triumph. For his raid on Lawrence, he gained the respect and admiration of thousands of Missourians who felt that he had paid back their enemies for the depredations visited upon their farms and towns by Kansas Jayhawkers and Yankee soldiers. But even as Quantrill's deadly raid on Lawrence was praised in western Missouri, his name was flashing across telegraph wires and was splashed across the pages of northern newspapers. As the gruesome details arrived, the northern public was horrified and William Quantrill's name became a curse as he was damned as the author of one of the blackest pages in American history. Thomas Ewing found he could not ignore the calls for swift and savage retribution which came from near and far. James Lane, who had barely escaped the massacre with his life, brought all his power as a U.S. Senator to bear on Ewing and Department Commander John Schofield, as did Kansas Governor Thomas Kearney. An outraged Kearney declared, I must hold Missouri responsible for this fearful, fiendish raid. No body of men large as that commanded by Quantrill could have been gathered together without the people residing in western Missouri knowing everything about it. On August 25th, four days after the Lawrence Massacre, Thomas Ewing, in his capacity as commander of the District of the Border, issued General Order Number 11. According to the order, except for a handful of Unionists living in or near federal garrison towns, all persons occupying the four western Missouri counties bordering Kansas were ordered to leave the region within 15 days. As you guys will recall, Ewing's General Order Number 10 would have banished the families of the bushwhackers to points south. But Ewing hadn't been able to implement that before Quantrill's raid on Lawrence. So now, since his earlier attempts to pacify western Missouri had obviously failed, and under pressure to swiftly avenge Lawrence, 
Thomas Ewing determined to make much of his district a desert. Around 20,000 people were affected by General Order No. 11. To enforce the edict, the Federals fanned out through the countryside and, with a savage efficiency, set about their task of depopulating the doomed region. Adding to the confusion and suffering, vengeful Kansas redlegs prowled western Missouri, preying on the refugees. By September 9, 1863, two weeks after Ewing had issued General Order No. 11, the four border counties in western Missouri were bleak and silent. The order had been carried out, as one officer put it, quote, to the letter. A federal soldier said, quote, The border counties of Missouri have almost as desolate an appearance as before the soil was trod by the white man. Not a man, woman, or child is to be seen in the country to which Order Number 11 applies. Chimneys mark the spot where once stood farmhouses. Turn which way you will, everything denotes a state of utter ruin and desolation. Of course, the times and circumstances being what they were, no statistics record what happened to the 20,000 or so Missourians hurled from their land by General Order No. 11. Some fortunate few, those who could prove their loyalty to the Union, did enter the garrisoned towns or across to an uncertain future in Kansas. Those who could not but were fortunate enough to have relatives elsewhere, departed the region with a specific destination in mind. However, for the majority of the displaced, they simply drifted off with nowhere to go and no idea how they would survive the coming winter. As for Quantrill, he and a number of his men headed for Texas to spend the winter months there. On returning to Missouri in the spring of 1864, his hold on his band of bushwhackers started to slip, and he was deposed as the group's leader. That summer, he hid out in northern Missouri with his mistress. That fall, he managed to pull together some of his old band, and about 30 of them headed for Kentucky. There, in May 1865, he was severely wounded and captured by a force of Federals. William Quantrill died in a prison in Louisville on June 6, 1865. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is... Bloody Dawn, The Story of the Lawrence Massacre by Thomas Goodrich. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to thank the newest members for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Shannon L. and to Christina. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. 
Thanks, everyone. Bye.